If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello everybody, Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 48 of the Early Excellence Podcasts. Coming up in this week's episode, we've got a really interesting conversation with the inspirational Trisha Lee. As part of our chat, we talk about the importance of celebrating children's own stories and also about Trisha's fantastic new book. Her book is called The Growth of a Storyteller, which explores the practice of using helicopter stories to value, nurture and inspire young learners. So here you go. Here's my Early Excellence podcast chat with Trisha Lee. Good morning, Trisha. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, very well. It is lovely to see you and uh, I'm really, really pleased that you could join us. I've been really looking forward to meeting you Um, because I've I've got the book you very kindly sent over your book, which is fantastic. Uh, The Growth of a Storyteller, which of course is your second book, isn't it? All about all of, all about telling stories and the wonderful nature of telling stories, which is is so inspirational. I think. Um, just before we get into talking about the book, can you can you tell us a little bit about how you got into all of this? Because it's 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 quite a, quite a niche, isn't it? Quite a corner, you know. You've got there, I think. So, how, what's your background? You know, how did you get into it? Well, I I think the reason I got got into um, working in this way is because. I really didn't do very well at school. I, and school was a bad place for me. Um, I was always in trouble. I was the fidget, the talkative one, the, the kid that kind of gets on everyone's nerves, really, because I'd always be moving around. And um, I mean, years later, I discovered I was a kinesthetic learner. I mean, that really is, yeah. you know, for me, if I wanted to think, I had to move. But of course, for teachers trying to control children I'm like you know I remember moving my desk from the back of the class because we used to have desks and I remember moving my desk from the back of the class to the front because I was just wriggling it forward and you know sort of so it was always that I never felt like I fitted in I never felt like education worked for me and the only only time where it did was drama and in the drama classroom I was in every single school play I was brilliant and really well behaved, totally focused, you know, sort of those would be the times where for me, um, it made sense that what I was doing would make sense. I'd learn lines. I, you know, I'd really put my heart and soul into working in that way, whereas I couldn't in any other um, classroom. And my family background, I was, my mum was a single parent. And so my home life wasn't brilliant. So I ended up leaving home at 16. And so I couldn't take A-levels. And so I just, you know, and I didn't do very well in terms of other qualifications. I've got hardly any um, it's GCSEs and I was sort of O-levels, I mean, and CSEs then. Um, but I really wanted to go to drama school. And so I fought and it was a degree course at Dartington College of Arts and I had to fight to get in. It was, you know, sort of a real battle. And I basically accused them of crimes against the working class (laughs) as my only way of getting in, of going in. Because I did, because they wanted A-levels and I didn't have them. And and I did a whole show that I put on that was really angst-ridden about, you know, being on trial for my life and got their tutors to come and see it. (laughs) 
And they came and watched this show and they kind of like, I think they just had to shut me up and went, we'll accept her. And they took me in. Um, and so, so, and it changed my life because it was the first time I was suddenly on a degree course and I was really focused because I was doing the thing that I wanted to do, that I loved. And so that, and I think for me, it's always been when I left college, the thing that was important was almost wanting to give that back. I know when I was at school, it was the theatre companies that came in with theatre and education companies that I would just sit going, wow, what is this? This is a life. This is what people do. And feeling like there was something there, a way of connecting. Um, and so all of my work has always been working with children. And initially it was secondary school and I gradually got lower and younger and younger. And I can't go, oh, I don't know if I can work with year five and year six, you know, are they gonna be able to cope with it? And then start doing that and going, oh, this is exciting. Oh, what about year three and four? And then I discovered the early years. I tell you, the early years are the most creative and it's just, it's undistilled. And so, you know, sort of that was the passion that came from it. And then I was working um, for the London Bubble Theatre Company and I was handed the book, one of Vivian Gussin Paley's book, The Boy Who Would Be a Helicopter. And they went, oh, you know, see if you can do anything with this. And actually, I think it's quite interesting because because I work in theatre, we have to get permission for everything. It's not education we steal, don't we? We borrow, we magpie, that's the word people use. <laughs> but educators are brilliant at that. Oh, I'll take a bit of that, I'll take that. Oh, do I have to praise anyone or, you know, sort of recognise that? No, no, I'll just take it all. Whereas in theatre, I mean, it's much more serious, you know, copyright and can I and getting permission. So I wrote to Vivian Gustin Paley who wrote The Boy Who Would Be a Helicopter. And Vivian is the person who created storytelling and story acting, or what we call helicopter stories. And I wrote to her. And um, I mean, actually, I had to get her address first. And I managed to get her address because somebody, um, I phoned up the school that she used to work at. And it was, I was lucky it was somebody who was a temp and they gave out her address and then immediately went, oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. It's a bit like those people who kind of um, almost as a prank phoned up a president or, you know, kind of see if they can get through to, you know, I don't know, like when, when I was a child, like Margaret Thatcher or somebody like that. You know, that kind of just as a, as a prank and then occasionally somebody does it and somehow gets through to somebody like that. But that's a similar kind of thing, isn't it? That kind of just trying it and seeing is really interesting, yeah. isn't it? And, and you clearly got through. Yeah, and by getting through, and, you know, I mean, Vivian was my friend for 20 years. She died in 2019, age 90, but we wrote to each other and I went over and saw her many times and she came here. She went into one of the classrooms that I worked with um, when I was in London and it became a lifelong friend, but it came out of that coincidence of, and I know if I worked in education as my main thing, I probably never would have contacted her. But it was that thing of being in theatre meant that I had to. And out of that, I became fascinated and, and wanted, you know, when I saw the first time I saw Vivian working and doing storytelling and story acting, it just made sense to me. It was like every single thing in my brain clicked into place because it was about really honoring the child 
and allowing the child to to be right. There's no wrong or right. It's whatever the child does is accepted. Yeah. Yeah. Is it works? It's fine. And gosh, I I mean, I would have loved that when I was a child, just to have those moments, to have your chance to shine in the sun. Yeah, and that's very empowering, isn't it? I think. And and in terms of when you think about not just obviously there are huge benefits in lots of ways in terms of speech and language and 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 literacy skills but just at a level before that it's about relationships isn't it and about about um saying actually what you've got to say is valuable is important what your voice is important you're somebody who who belongs in this group there's a so a feeling of it's way before we even get anywhere near sort of literacy skills. At at its core, it's a it's a feel like you said when you at the very beginning, it's that feeling of of belonging or not belonging, and that if we don't feel that we belong or that this isn't the place for us, really effective learning isn't going to happen. We're not there's nothing to build that on, is there? There's, you know there is there is nothing to put that foundation in, and so you've got to get that, haven't you? And and I think what what comes across loud and clear from from your work is that actually at its heart it's about valuing and about relationships yeah yeah and it's it's that thing of being heard and i think you know it's a human need isn't it i want to be heard i need people to hear and then then it's all right if i'm listened to like okay that's good it makes me feel better it makes me feel safe and i think you know, for me, the teachers that I've worked with, and I mean, I've worked all over the world. I've been really lucky that I've been able to travel with this. And I've worked in all sorts of classrooms, in preschools, in um, reception, year one and year two classrooms working in this way. And people who work with children using this approach on a regular basis, one of the things that all of them say is they get to know their children better and they get to and that's about hearing them and you see that of you know like um there was a boy I was working with who he when he got up to tell his first story and he was quite late in telling his first story everyone else had been doing them but he he'd held back quite a bit and as soon as he came somebody went it's a dinosaur story, isn't it? So the other children knew that it was about dinosaurs, which we as adults, we might not know that this child, you know, Lucas is the dinosaur kid and all the other kids yeah. know that, but it goes over our heads. And yet actually that's vital information because that's how we hook children. That's what, you know, because it's like, you know, children can remember all these names of dinosaurs. You know, you kind of go, God, you can really see what's going on, how they think, where they are in their development, rather than shoving phonics at them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, I, th I think the that and uh, that idea of, you know, every child having something that they are kind of a bit of an expert in. You know, whether it be dinosaurs or whether it be steam trains or 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 what you know, it could be it could be all sorts of different things. Um, that that your approach, I think, is such an, a kind of an individual approach that it provides you with the opportunity to to focus in on actually what's that child got to say, what's yeah. that child got that they can tell me about. Yeah, it's interesting. The other day, the first I was with this reception classroom, and it's sort of obviously because it's the beginning of term it's only my second session with them and a little boy Connor told me a tornado story mm. 
And I sort of, and he was saying it's whirling and swirling and using this amazing language. And and actually it's fascinating. And then I I got him afterwards because some of the other children didn't really know what a tornado was. So I asked him to go on the stage and show them how the tornado moved. And he was swirling his body around and showing physically his understanding of how the tornado worked, picking up houses and picking up sheep. And it was just brilliant. And I might never, I think it's that, you might never know this about your children. And yet actually, you know, if you go, oh, I've got a tornado expert here, you know, what does that lead on to? In ter- you know, I mean, we're all this thing about, oh, they should know about the seasons. And it's like going, we've got a tornado expert in the room. Let's kind of see what, where he takes the curriculum, where Absolutely. that goes. Yeah, definitely. I think I think I think sometimes we're very very quick to 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 bring content to the children without going the in the opposite direction of seeing actually what is it that they're fascinated by and how much can we use that as a as a driver for learning because there's such power there. You know, when when you know young children that of course that that. Once they're fascinated by something, once once young children are absolutely absorbed and and obsessed by something, they can't think of anything else. You know, I can think of you know my my children when they were younger. You know, if they were obsessed by one particular thing, you could talk to them about anything else, and every time the converse, they would bring the conversation back to dinosaurs or whatever it was that they were fascinated by at the moment, and so. If that is taking over their their brain at the moment, then that's incredibly powerful and we've got to use that, I think. And yet we often don't, I think. We often go in the opposite direction and we think about what we bring to them. Whereas I think what your what your approach is, is is does take the voice of the child very much and takes that voice very seriously and provides the opportunity for the conversations and the storytelling around it, which I think is great. Um for people who who who've never encountered helicopter stories and not, you know, and the approach of helicopter stories. And uh, of course, this is your second book, The, the Growth of the Storyteller. Um, and the first book, of course, which was Princesses, Dragons and Helicopter Stories. For people who've not, who, who aren't aware of your work, are you, can you give us a, a kind of a, a starting point? Tell, tell us about what, what does it look like in practice? So, um, Helicopter Stories, in essence, is a really simple approach. Uh, Children sit down with an adult and they scribe the child's words verbatim, word for word. Um, So, you know, sort of exactly, I go to the shops. We're writing grammar, exactly how the child says it. So we, we write it down exactly in the way the child says it. And then we gather back together at, you know, sort of an appropriate time just before dinner at the end of the day, whenever, um, and all the class act out the story of the child. So it's really, really simple. But of course, with any simple approach, there's layers of what makes it work and, um, you know, sort of how it actually goes together and how you introduce it. So that's what I did in my first book, Princesses, Dragons and Helicopter Stories, was it was very much a how-to on the approach of going, you know, whereas growth of a storyteller is the why, is how do children grow as storytellers? Um, But yeah, so it is very simple. And we always introduce the approach by bringing some stories that other children have told us. 
to the stage and I get children acting out. So I kind of get everyone acting out and then I'll take a story across the stage. So, you know, so, so children can see. And it, it just is that moment of children going, oh, that's what happens when we act out a story. Oh, that's what happens when you scribe a story. And then they can be at free flow and you're collecting stories. So they're at, you know, sort of they're doing their play, they're involved, they're in their activities. And then I'll just go over and go, you know, who wants to tell me a story? And I'll sit with them. And you can do that in the sand pier. You can do that, yeah, you know, so anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. yeah, inside, yeah. outside. I mean, it really does work wherever in your setting. Um, I've done it under umbrellas in the rain. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, you literally. Um, and then sometimes I'll just be sat on the carpet and it'll be quite intimate with what just a child who wants to sit quietly next to me and tell their story. And sometimes it's a yeah. group and I'm like this, having to really <laughs> listen to them. Do you find uh, do you find that when you first work with a group of children, if they're not used to that, that it that it maybe you see a real progression that actually initially uh, you kind of, you know, say something like, can you tell me a story? And, and because they're not used to being put on the spot, there's a kind of a oh crikey, I don't know. And you, they'll come out, out with whatever is first in their mind. But then I suppose you have a routine of it and you keep coming back and say, OK, let, tell me a story. And they're then ready for it. And they know that you're the person who's going to be saying, tell me a story. And over a certain period of time, actually, they are more and more prepared for it to the point where they've started thinking about stories. And I suppose over time, they're able to start to structure that. Is that right? Do you see that progression? Yes. I mean, in terms of... The growth of a storyteller in terms of the way I see storytellers growing, it actually, they go through, they children do go through different stages and it's not, I, I didn't want the, the growth of a storyteller to be ages and stages, you know, it's, no, it's sure. so not yeah. like, do they'll say this and if they don't, then they're <laughs> failing. Because I've known four, you know, I've known six-year-olds who've told a one-word story, yeah. you know, it's actually about going, this is where they first start to join that journey and... So often within that, they're bringing up the hero first. It's like, you know, all stories. And I, you know, for me, the more I've looked into the stories that children tell, I believe we're hardwired from birth to make sense of the world through story. And there's a lot of science that backs that up as well. But I really, I, I think it's really important that we understand that children come to this as storytellers because they instinctively do it. What they might not have is those structures and the, the formal way of doing it. Um, so we can be supporting that. But actually, practice is what helps them to do that. So yeah. you're right. I, I've, I've seen people go, oh, we did Helicopter Stories for World Book Day. And I'm like, going, that's lovely. But it's not it's just, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, Helicopter Stories is for life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and presumably, and I'm guessing here, but presumably the, the, what you would then advocate is that adults really do throw themselves into that as well. So that so that say so the adults on a regular basis would start the day or or at some point in the day and t and tell a story and it could be and 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 I think what's important here that it's not it's not the same as tell what I would say anyways it's not the same as telling a story from a book that that there are two separate things going on there that that that, that, that of course it's important to go to the book area get a book and and be enthused about it and share it with the children. 
But there's a different thing, which is coming to school one morning and going, you will never, you'll not believe what happened to me when I left the house this morning. You will, you're not going to believe this. This happened, then this happened, and, and, and so on. And, and getting into the habit of telling stories is, is important, I think. Do, do, yeah, so do, yeah. do, you, do you work with the adults in that way? Well, I, I, I mean, I think for me, one of the things that's been the biggest um, way, you know, for me, the focus for me is what Vivian's classroom was like. So Vivian's yeah. classroom was very much, um, she would be telling stories. She And she worked with kindergarten and, you know, which is up to six in America, but, you know, sort of, and sometimes it was from the threes that she would be, there'd be different types of kindergarten that she'd be in. Um, but she would be telling stories. She would be reading stories. She would be sharing stories. She'd share things like Charlotte's Web, the book Charlotte's mm -hmm. Web, which more, right. most people would go, oh, maybe seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And actually she was doing that with her kindergarten children. Yeah. And I just think it's that, it's exposing. She did the tinderbox. Do you know the tinderbox? Yeah. Eyes as big as sauce. Yeah. I loved that, that story yeah. as a child. But I think, you know, so for me, when I talk about a language-rich environment to really develop our children as storytellers, I think you're totally right. It's getting the adults to go, I can make up a story. And that story can be just what happened in the day, or it can be, um, I'm going to do my own telling of a story like the tinderbox or, you know, sort of the porridge pot or whatever. And also it's it's about reading, it's about that. But I think it's it's the oral side that we don't do as much of and we don't see as much. And if children don't hear stories, they aren't going to grow. And we know that. We know all of us, if we think about children we work with, we can pick out which child is read to the most. Yeah. You can yeah. see it in their language development, in the way that they speak. However... All children come with some storytelling ability and they come with that understanding. And you can see that because even if it is like their stories are very simple, there was a bear, it ate me. <laughs> <laughs> They're still, it's still a story form. You yeah. know what I mean? It, it is as simple as, and children understand story form. Um, Paul Bloom, uh, who uh, was a developmental psychologist, he did this work, Our Babe, Are We Born Kind? Mm -hmm. And he was doing some research into looking at how, how babies actually understand good and bad. He did it with puppets, with 18-month-olds, and they wow. had um, a teddy bear bouncing a ball, and then the teddy bear puppet drops the ball, and a rabbit comes in, picks it up, looks at the teddy bear and gives the teddy bear the ball back. The teddy bear carries on bouncing the ball, drops it again. Another rabbit comes in, grabs the ball, looks at the teddy bear, runs off. And then they held these rabbits, these two rabbits, up to the babies at 18 months. And the 18-month-old would always reach for the kind rabbit. And then they went, what happens if we do this with younger children? And they took it down. They actually got it to three-month-olds. And with three-month-olds, they knew from previous work they'd done a three-month-old, because obviously I haven't got the reaching reflex, but a three-month-old will look longer at the thing they want. And they held up the two rabbits and the three-month-old all look longer 
at the kind rabbit rather than the unkind. And out of that, you know, for me reading that and looking at it from a storytelling perspective, that's the essence of story. We need to understand the goodies and the baddies. And you have yeah. to have goodies and baddies and you have to have conflict in story because actually that's, you know, that explosion is what moves our hero on. It's what our hero has to overcome in their journey. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think as well in stories, we often, we often shield young children from that kind of conflict or the, the kind of something that might be a bit scary. You know, traditionally we've had kind of sort of traditional tales that have actually been really quite scary and, you know, really at times horrifying, you know, and yet actually, and, and I think there's, there's been certainly over the last number of decades, there's sort of a push towards almost kind of softening that really, that, that if you pick up a, a, you know, Red Riding Hood or something like that book in a bookshop now, actually, it's been very toned down, hasn't it, over over a period of time? And I was I was thinking that you know books like sort of when I was growing up, books like uh, Where the Wild Things Are, which is always one of my favourite books, is an ama- I think it's a, a brilliant book by Maurice Maurice Sendak. Is actually you know quite scary. It is about goodies and baddies. It is about kind of dealing with something which is frightening, but in a way that actually is done carefully so that the, you, know, just, you see what I mean I th- and, I, and I think there is an element of that that we've lost a little bit in storytelling yeah I think you're right and I think there can be a real fear of that of you know sort of fighting overcoming baddies and you know sort of yeah. all of those things which is really is really dangerous because actually in story it's how we do things to help us when we confront the monsters in real life. We need to learn. Story actually helps us. It teaches us to to confront the demons, you know, and and work in that way, which is why children do it. And children are very good at doing it safely for themselves. They protect themselves. So a child might go, and then he died. And then he was alive again. And they'll go, they they almost go, oops, that's too far. Can't cope with that. I'm going to bring... I'm going to bring the character back to life. So they will, you know, sort of they'll get in their house and they'll lock their door with a thousand sellotapes. And, you know, they just have these ways of kind of going, okay, I'm going to save myself. It's about how close can I get to the dragon? How close can I get to the monster? What can I do? I had one one story a girl told me and she was in a cage and she'd been locked up by this horrible monster and then she took out her mobile phone and phoned her mum and her mum came and said... <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, in... You know, if that was in a film, you'd go, no, no, that's just too easy. You know what I mean? But actually, for, for children, what they're doing is they're, they're going, oh, what could I do if I'm in? You could see her living yeah. through that moment and how could... Oh, my phone. Mum, can you come and rescue me? <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I also think as adults, we forget what it was like when we were children to be absolutely absorbed by our imaginations. You know, those sort of moments when you're, when, when as, a, as a young child, you'd be playing and so completely caught up in it. That's not something as an adult that we allow ourselves to do, or, or maybe we don't, we're not able to do it anymore. I don't know. But, but 
that I think part of what I what I really like about your approach is that actually you tune into that that really vivid imagination that young children have, that 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 all encompassing imagination where they will literally live it, won't they? They will kind of they'll be part of the story and absolutely live it. And I think the drama of of what you bring into in, into your work helps them explore that even more. Well, that's the value of acting it out as well, is that mm. what you do, and, you know, I mean, apart from all the, the, the literacy um, benefits of seeing yeah. your words written down, making the connection between spoken and written word, I mean, you know, there's massive in terms of, you know, the educational benefits to it. But actually, you also go, this is my story. Now I'm seeing others bringing it to life. And you choose what character you play in your story. And then the rest of the characters are chosen going around the stage. So you actually get to see. So it's not your mates. You know, it is literally we take it in turn, um, which opens it up because you might get to see, you know, sort of you might be a baddie, but there'll be some of the girls being baddies with you. And you don't normally see them being the baddies. And, you know, it just changes and then start the baddies start to go into the girls' story because they borrow from each other. And... Yeah, that, it's that magpieing again, isn't it? Um, I was going to ask you about that kind of. You were saying that that there is that children will see their words written down, and and of course there is that link then to developing writing skills. Um, writing in itself is kind of a, a sort of within schools, particularly at the moment. Writing is incredibly high stakes isn't it people are under such a lot of pressure to to get the children writing to to show progress in writing and and to to make all those big leaps in terms of writing and to show it um it there is so much more to helicopter stories and the approach around helicopter stories than just the writing but actually i would imagine that it, it, through an approach through your approach, actually, what you gain is is are those writing skills as well. Is that right? Is that how you see it? Well, I mean, I, I sort of I, I spend my life going helicopter stories is not a writing approach. And I, I'm yeah. very adamant because I'd hate people to see it as that. It's not yeah. about that because it's because the other things for me are so important. However, helicopter stories is fantastic at getting children connecting with writing. And it's because, you know, what is writing? Writing is putting in print your words. It's, you know, I mean, it's actually fixing something that's important to you on a piece of paper so that you can look at it the next day and the next day. I mean, that's like, you know, that's living, that's immortality, isn't it? And I think what Helicopter Stories does initially, the first stage of that is that children see their words being written down. I was with a three-year-old um, the other day and she her story was a list story, horsey, cow, um, sheep, and she'd sort of gone through all these lists of characters. So she'd peopled her stage with all these animals. Um, next time she'll say what happens to them. I'm sure eventually that will grow, but at the moment she's got her cast list. And then when I asked her which character she'd want to play, she literally is looking up and down and her finger going up and down until she points to the horsey, says horsey. 
and we put a circle around. So, so all of that, the connection, this is a three-year-old who's already going, when you put those shapes on the page, that was that word, when you did them, because it's my words, it's not some words an adult, we talked about that earlier, about imposing on, these are the most important words because they're mine. I, I put them on there and now I see what each of them says. And I have that all the time where children point, you know, it's early reading to the yeah. character. And then what happens is you might get a child in the class going, oh, do you want to tell me your story? And they'll either come to me and ask me to tell them a story or they'll go to another child. So all of that where they want to see what does it feel like, which is what story is. Story is let's empathise. What does it feel like to be in someone else's shoes? The children are going, what does it feel like to be the teacher and try this out? So they're trying... And so they'll go around and it might be emergent writing and they'll be working, you know, sort of taking somebody else's story. Often you then hear them starting to repeat because when I take a story, um, so a child might say there was a dog, I write and say the words at the same time. There was a dog so that they can see what I'm writing and follow along. Yeah. And also it means they know that I've connected with what they've got. So I hear children doing that with their emergent writing. The girl went to the... So they're making the connection that the marks have meaning. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, what happens is once I've settled it, and I, oh, this is a, a bit of a warning to people here, because you will get more writing than you can cope with. So make sure if you're doing helicopter stories, you embed it first. If you do all of these at the same time, I the only complaint I've ever had about helicopter stories is too much <laughs> writing. I can't cope. How do I cope? When you start having to work out which child is allowed to write on a certain day, you know you've hooked your children as writers but what I do so what is, I'll tell you how to do this now but don't do it straight away get helicopter stories set up <laughs> so once helicopter stories is going and the children have all started telling their own stories I normally only act out about six stories a day so we only take about six stories a day because it will get too much with younger children threes and fours in preschool you can probably go up to about 10 so, you know, so because the, the stories are shorter, but once the stories start getting longer, you do need to limit it. A5 paper, big writing. Um, so once that's going really well, I will then say, OK, so these are the children who are taking their story today. Anyone who's not telling a story, if you want to, you could write your own and maybe we'll act those out. And I just put down loads of A5 paper and I put down proper pens You'd have to earn them in my classroom. <laughs> no pen licenses. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not. Have a pen. You can write. And, and so I just, and I literally just put them very unceremonially on the floor. There's no kind of ritual to it. It's just like, here they are. If you want them, take them. I have swarms of children wanting to take them and then come back. If they hand me a page of emergent writing, then I'll say to them, what character are you going to be? So don't transcribe because otherwise you'll just, you just will never get through it. So I'll go, what character are you going to be in this story? And so they'll say princess. And I just write the word princess. And when we act it out, can I see you being the princess? And they walk around the stage. As they write it, as they start to write, 
Sometimes I need to get them to read it to me so I can make sure that I know what it says. But the thing is, because their writing will never be, you know, as, as big as their, um, you know, as long as their spoken right. word, we're able to act it out because normally the early writing is a sentence or a couple of sentences. Mm. I did by the end of year one. I mean, some of my children were writing books <laughs> and we'd act out the first page of them and have to go, we'll right. do another chapter another week. But what I find is... It's the connection. Why? I don't, you know, I mean, I think for me, the problem with writing is that we've set it up as something that's about a tick box. You know what I mean? And that's not writing. Yeah. And it becomes about grammar, not about writing. And I mean, yeah. I prefronted no, ah, <laughs> pre adverbials. I mean, what are they? What are they? <laughs> and why? But, but writing becomes something we can tick. And actually, writing isn't that. Writing is communication. Writing is exactly what we were saying at the beginning. It's being heard. And yeah. if we go that as the starting point, this is your voice. Then writing is, is it's irresistible, actually, because yeah, and, and, and joyful, isn't it? Yeah, all of what you're describing and and what comes across, I think, is is this is that if you do it right in terms of really valuing the children and really building up that approach to storytelling and and that those rich opportunities for storytelling, that actually a lot of other things will naturally flow out of it. Because actually children have those stories and then we'll be able to share those stories and you harness the power of that by doing that. Whereas if it's, if it's just a stressy exercise where, write, where writing is what we're wanting and the teacher is stressed because the writing that I'm going to have to get out of them has got to be amazing and the grammar has got to be there and I don't want it to show up any faults in my teaching, then the teacher's going to be stressed and the teacher's stress then ends up on the shoulders of the child and the child feels this stress and then is suddenly trying to write when and it's you've taken the joy out of it straight away. Whereas and also there's no that. purpose to it. If you're writing, who are you writing for? You know, why, why would you write for the teacher unless you're doing a degree and then you're not writing for the teacher. You're actually writing to get the degree. You know what I mean? So you are writing for yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah. why is it? that it's kind of like, you know, when you can have an audience of your peers. Yeah. So we act out every single story, which does, you know, sort of sometimes the sessions get longer when you start getting loads and you do end up negotiating who's writing on which week because if you've got 28 children all writing. But we found ways to manage it because I'd far rather that and have that passion that the children are coming to the writing with and, you know, sort of boys and girls. And, you know, quite often, you know, girls might be the ones who are more likely to do the writing and the boys less likely. I have, you know, sort of across the genders, children wanting to do this and feeling it's important. Fantastic. It's very powerful, really powerful. Um, you mentioned earlier on... Um, that with this being your second book, what you wanted to do was within the first book, it was a kind of a how, and then this book is a is is more of a why. Your second book, more of a kind of a, a you know all of the 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 things behind it, and and you know the the kind of making it very the the case studies within the book, you know, make it very much that sort of the that depth of understanding about the approach. Um, in terms of the, the different things within it, you've included quite a lot of research as well. 
And um, I wondered whether you'd tell us a little bit more about the, the kind of the research behind it, you know, the, those different sorts of elements. Yeah, I'm a bit geeky, really, when it comes to um, I, I'm really into science. I do think science and storytelling are incredibly linked. They're both about asking why and how. So I think, you know, so I mean, there's a lot of research showing that. Um, but I so I started to get I've always heard this thing that our brains are hardwired to make sense of the world through story. I've kind you know, it's banded around a lot and, and I've banded it around myself. But I needed to go how? And is it? And what's happening? So I started to look a lot deeper. And over the last few years, I've really began to read more. Um, and there's some amazing stuff written on this. There's a guy called um, Kendall Haven, who was a NASA scientist. Um, and then he left and became a storyteller, which is so cool. And he's <laughs> written an amazing book called Story Proof, which is all about looking at, you know, sort of how our brains are connected and proving that we think in this way, how we really understand and make sense of the world through story. And some of the stuff that I got really excited about is, is there's a lot of um, neurologists now really researching what happens in the brain when we hear stories. And, you know, from various different points of view, and one of the things that really excited me is this notion of everything lighting up. So they wired people's brains up to see what's happening. And it's not just the temporal lobe, which is responsible for the emotions. Um, so if you've ever um, read a book or watched a film and wanted to cry, that's your temporal lobe. It's kind of, you know, sort of lighting up and you're empathizing because we become that character. We are so connected with the character. So that's that side. But also if it's a chase scene, you might feel yourself tensing, your body tensing. And I was watching these, um, I've started watching on Netflix, the the um, the diver, the uh, school kids, the football team that oh, were trapped yes, in the cave. <laughs> it's amazing. It's that, isn't it? I was, when, when the, um, the, the, coach goes underwater that first time I was holding I, even now I can feel that reflex in me wanting to hold my breath for him yeah. and that's you know so it's the motor cortex we're actually wanting we're so connected it's not just oh I'm enjoying this this isn't just fun this is a brain workout that mm. we're going through and if you watch children even in the audience doing helicopter stories and there's a tiger on the stage, you'll see some of them putting their hands into claw shape or screwing up their faces or all of those things. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. It's because, you know, and the science behind that is that what's happening when we hear a story is we're going to the same place as the person who was creating that story. So actually, you know, even then when we were talking about the divers and holding our breath, so I, my brain has immediately gone back into that place from there and it started lighting up. So your brain has done the same. So when the people are listening to this, their brains will be doing the same. And it's like telegraph wires of all our brains lighting up in the same way, which I think is mind blowing. And then they took this, sorry, I get very excited about this, but <laughs> they took this research um, and some, a University College of London went to the Savoy Theatre and um, they watched 
a production of Dream Girls. And what they did was they wanted to monitor various members of the audience's hearts. And so they actually asked, and they did it by volunteers. Nobody knew each other. It wasn't that it was all friends or anything. They had loads of people in the audience whose hearts were being monitored. At the beginning of the performance, um, the heart, you know, before the performance started, everyone's heart was just doing their own thing. Then the performance started. And as it started, people's hearts started beating at exactly the same time. And then as it got exciting, they sped up at exactly the same time. And as it calmed down a bit, they slowed down. And it's just phenomenal. And so they could track the peaks and flows of the performance by the heartbeats. And it's just for me, I've always wanted, I mean, can you imagine if we could, if there was a way to, to monitor the hearts and the heads of our children, what was happening in their brains as they were involved, it, well, in all activities, because you'd go, no, this is killing them, don't do it. This yeah. is where really in connected. And it's that sense of community. We become a community when we're in the theatre, we join with everybody. We sigh at the same time. We, you know, we feel together. You get somebody who goes, ah, and everyone jumps. It's like we're all in that same place. And that sense of community is incredible. And that, you know, it's amazing because it's, it's all of that that helps in a classroom, that sense of community. When we do helicopter stories, because that's what's happening, they're connecting. Those children's brains are connecting when they do that. They're becoming in tune. Their hearts are becoming in tune. So they're a community. And when I've seen this working over two or three years, those children are really connected because of that, that experience. Because they've got shared memories. The dopamine has meant that, you know, they've got yeah. memories happening, that they're connected in there. They've got loads and loads of oxytocin, which means that they love each other and feel, you know, I mean, it helps to see, it's all of that side yeah, of it. Which goes back to what we were saying earlier on, that sense of belonging, doesn't it? That actually stories help us to feel that we belong. It's a bit like singing together as well. You know, that sort of thing where actually you feel part of something that's bigger than the individual. And it's the same within a classroom, isn't it? You engage in storytelling or singing or sharing rhymes or drama or whatever it might be. And actually the, the benefits of it are not just about literacy. The benefits of it are, are about that group be, belonging together and feeling that they belong and, and, and feeling secure within that group. Because you can't learn if you don't feel safe. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, and that for me is why all of these things, you can't write if you can't speak. You know, you need to speak it to write it. You need to hear the sounds of words and the taste of words. You need to experience all of that to have to find the joy in those yeah. things. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, the other thing that I, I was going, I wanted to ask you about as well is that what I really like about this second book is the, the case studies within it. I feel that you really bring your work to life with the case studies in that I think all of the children that, that are there within those case studies, I think probably everybody who reads the book will have, will know a child like that child, you know, will have, will, will go, oh yeah, that's just like so-and-so in my class at the minute or just like so-and-so that I had last year. And I think it's such a powerful way of bringing, bringing your work to life. And, may, and, and sort of helping people to see the possibilities 
that actually the the children that you work with are not uh, are not different children that 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 can do these amazing things. They can, but they they're the same as your children. They're the same as everybody's children. Every every child has can do these things given the right context. Um, and I, I think that there was one particular one. So the study of um, the girl who couldn't sit still, um, who, fe- who is a little girl called Daisy in the book. Um, tell, tell us about Daisy. Yeah, I, Daisy, Daisy couldn't sit still. Daisy was me, really, <laughs> which is why it's quite a nice uh, circle to come back to her, really, isn't it? Um, she was... Yeah, a complete fidget. It was funny watching somebody, watching a child who's very like you. <laughs> As a child, I go, yeah, I was a bit annoying, wasn't I? <laughs> but she was brilliant because she wanted to include everyone in her stories. And it was really important to her. So you'd see her for her early stories. She'd be literally going, and then there was... Um, Martin and then, and she'd be looking and scanning around the classroom trying to make sure she didn't miss anybody out so you know sort of she'd have everyone I'd have to say to her Daisy I don't think we're going to fit all of these people on the stage <laughs> so she was brilliant at wanting all of that and she her home background you know single parent mum very I mean very similar a lot of stuff and she didn't have any brothers or sisters desperately wanted family but as she developed as a storyteller you really began to see her going through lots of different stages so she she did a lot of um quite uh, she did a portal story one of her portal stories which was incredible I've, I've actually got it here if I can read it once upon a time there was a little girl and she went down the toilet and she was trying to get out, but she can't breathe. And she just runned away from the big bear. And I love that story because it really, it's, you know, for me, it's a really good example of what we see, what the child says, and then what we see when we act it out. Because when she went down the toilet, and, you know, there was a lot of toilet stuff going on in the class, but she took it seriously. This isn't a joke about, oh, I'm just saying toilet. This is what's it like if you go down one? So you can see a scientist in action going, oh, how would that work? And when she was playing, going down the toilet, she was really (laughs) wriggling her body. And like she was trying to squeeze her way through these pipes, (laughs) which was just brilliant. And then when she, and like holding her breath, really, you know, sort of, I remember she was really like this, got to get down here. And then it was why I say it's a portal story, which is, you know, moving into a new world, was there was this um, moment where she stood up and she looked around and then I'd got the children up to be the bear and then she ran away. And it really was like she'd arrived in this whole other world, which was just incredible. But yeah, Daisy did a lot of kind of rags to riches type. And, you know, this is where it fascinates me is that children who haven't had massive exposure to stories are still fitting in with the hero's journey, the seven basic plot types. And I talk a lot about that in the book, that actually we need to recognise that that story is in there because then we can support it and develop it and help them to grow in it, but that they actually are bringing a lot of this with them. Um, Shall I read another one? Oh, yeah. 
So this was um, when she was six. One little girl was walking in a forest. She had a ripped dress and she couldn't afford a house because she didn't have any money. And she saw a prince coming by and she fell into a pond. And the prince grabbed her out of the pond and dragged her to the castle. And then she woke up and the prince wanted to ask her, will you marry me? And she said, yes. But it's just, I mean, it's such a classic rags yeah. to riches. But the detail in that, and I really felt that she borrowed from her own life a lot within her story. We can't afford that. And, you know, sort of all of those things. So you, and I think that's it where you feel like you get to know the child. And there's a lot of her stories were very much about um, not having a sibling wanting, you know, she'd do happy families where there'd be three or four sisters who would be there and they'd all brush each other's hair. You know what I mean? It's kind of like this, this fantasy world and there'd always be a mum and a dad and, you know, really wanting something that wasn't her world. And actually, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler for the book, but I do bring all the children back because I stopped seeing them because of COVID. And the last chapter is where I bring all the children back to actually talk to them and remind them. And I give them their stories to look through and they look through their books and we act out some of their old stories. But before, when they first arrive, they're all there gathered around in the circle. And we do this thing where I just go, well, how's it going? And, you know, because none of us have seen each other. You know, they're in year four now. They were in year two when I saw them last. Um, and the first thing Daisy said was, I've got a baby brother. And so Aww. her mum had got with somebody and she'd got a baby brother. And it was so lovely to go. And I kind of, I really felt like I'd missed the story of that, you know, that I would, because um, I wasn't around for it. There's apparently, um, there's an African tribe that who say that um, when somebody's away from the tribe, it's almost as if they're dead to all the stories. So when they come back, you have to remind them of the stories that have happened and they'll sit with that person to fill the stories in. And I really felt like that with all of the children that I was working with when I came back and they were in year four, that it was giving them time to catch me up on the stories of what had happened to them in that time, to give them that time before we could start on why I was there or any of that. We took probably, I think probably about half an hour where they were just literally telling me about, you know, the pets that had died and the babies that had been born and, you know, the changes in their life or how they'd gone to another school and come back. And But it's... it's as we were saying before, isn't it? It's the relationship behind everything else. It's the it's the the stories are part of the relationship, and the relationship that is part of the stories that we're telling each other. It's a bit like within a family, isn't it? You know, when we get together at certain points in the year, you know, as a family, there are we tell stories, and they're often the same stories that we've told previously. You know, do you remember when Grandad did this? And do you remember when that happened? And and it, it's 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 what bonds us together, isn't it? It's what you know. Those stories are things that are very personal to us as a group, 
And it's the, I think so it's the same in a, in a class. And I think it's so easy with the way, you know, the curriculum's going and the pressure on teachers that it's that bit that we forget and we mm. don't, you know, and that's where Helicopter Stories is so good because it comes in, because yes. you, you know, because that's what's important to the child. So, and we're not giving them any framework for their stories. They can be whatever they want. So actually we learn what is important and we hear their stories and know in that way, which yes. otherwise... You know, if we don't have time, if we're pressured all the time, then we lose and we haven't got those relationships. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Tricia, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely inspirational and, and fantastic to talk to you. I've loved talking to you and, and hearing about your work. Thank you so much for joining us on the on the podcast. Um, the, the book itself, um, your second book, of course, uh, The Growth of a Storyteller, Helicopter Stories in Action. It's on uh, David Fulton. It's with David Fulton Publishers. Um, it's available at Early Excellence. So if people want to, to come along to the centre at Early Excellence, they can pick up a copy there. Um, all available, of course, online as well. Um, I'd certainly recommend it. Absolutely recommend it. In fact, just before the other thing that I did was just before um, I came on the call this morning, I was watching your the the clip that you've just put on Twitter. I've just started following you on Twitter, and I and I um I was watching the clip of 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 all of the different things that are involved within the book of the different stories and the children's voices. And uh, yeah, certainly if you're interested in getting the book, I'd certainly recommend it. But have a look at, at Trisha's short film on, on social media. It will absolutely draw you in. Um, Trisha, thank you. Okay, there you go. Thank you very much to Trisha for joining us on the podcast this week. Um, it was great to have her along as a guest. Um, I love talking through all sorts of ideas with Trisha and um, hearing more about the helicopter stories approach. Lots of inspirational stories as well that kind of underpin the work as well, which I th yeah, thought was great. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about Trisha's work, her new book that we mentioned in our conversation is highly recommended. Um, if, you if you're lucky enough to be heading to the Early Excellence Centre, then we stock it there, so you'll be able to get hold of a copy there, or you can go onto the Early Excellence website. We'll put a link in the podcast information so you can go straight to it. Okay, certainly recommended. It's a great book. Um, that's about it for this week, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the chat. I'm sure you have. Um, we'll see you next week. Have a good week, everybody. <laughs>